1: From acclaimed director, Ang Lee, comes a portrait of an American family. Dear Lord, thank you for this Thanksgiving holiday. And for letting us stuff ourselves like pigs, oh, okay. even though children in Asia are being It's enough, all right. Paul,
0: roll. They were growing up.
1: Wendy. A person's body is his temple.
0: And they were falling apart.
1: I don't ever want to see you. Then why'd you come after me?
0: It's not what you think. It's not some big plot.
1: And during one winter
0: weekend, they would discover something that would change their lives forever. Stop. Stop. Kevin Kline, Joan Allen, Toby McGuire, Christina Ricci, Elijah Wood, and Sigourney Weaver. The Ice Storm. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that has been secretly throwing your Prozac samples in the trash all this time. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I always sound very, very too excited about
1: autopsy. Have you noticed that, Chris? I mean, I'm always pretty excited about autopsy. autopsy.
0: Hurrah! (laughs) I am your host, Joe Reed. I am here as always with my co-host Chris File. Hello, Charles. Hello, Charles. Uh, how's it going?
1: <laughs> I'm excited
0: to talk about this movie. I feel like this movie um, has been, I feel like this was a very early, early example for me of a movie that had a lot of awards, expectations that came up fully short, and I was aware of it at the time, like as it was unfolding.
1: I also think, I mean, like, we're straying a tiny bit here, even though there's a lot of really, like, crucial talking points that we can dive into with this movie in particular. But we're straying a little bit because, like, this is a little bit of a critical darling where, like, you sometimes talk about, it. does the conversation just become about how a movie is too good for Oscar? Right. Or at least at the time it was perceived that way. Like, I don't know if I love this movie as much as when I first saw it, but there's definitely a lot to talk about. And people I think we haven't really talked about that much. Absolutely So I'm excited to get into this.
0: It's funny that you say it that way, because I feel like this is a movie that I like a lot more than I liked the first, that I liked it the first time. I feel like the first time I saw it, I fell in with what I believe ended up being the consensus about this movie, which was... It's very well made. It's very handsomely made. Ang Lee clearly knows what he's doing, but it is chilly and remote and depressing and about downbeat characters and why should we care and yada yada. And I feel like that was ultimately, especially in a year that also had like that where the dominant narrative awards wise was Titanic. Like you really didn't want to be. I mean, the ice storm is not the turd in the punch bowl, but you didn't want to be like the depressive
1: child in that family portrait, right? Right. So even though like Titanic isn't necessarily uplifting, but it's such a primarily emotional experience and like the type of things people kept returning to and returning to and like people loved loving that movie together. Whereas this one is a little bit more of like a remote emotional experience and kind of intellectual and like. This was a very
0: well-reviewed movie. Currently on Rotten Tomatoes, it sits at 84%. That feels about right. It was number one on Gene Siskel's year-end list in 1997. Ebert gave it four stars. But Kenneth Turan at the Los Angeles Times was one of the negative reviews, and I feel like his review very much sums it up. Where he begins it, he says... More aptly named than it's prepared to acknowledge, the ice storm's glacial saga of New England wasps behaving badly is as frigid as its name. That was the tenor of the reception to the ice storm, was it may be well made, but it's glacial, it's cold. Like, the title really sets itself up for those comparisons anyway, where it's just like, ah, the ice storm, yeah, it's cold and it's frigid and, um... And nobody really wanted to spend a whole lot of time with these characters, which I remember feeling at the time. Of course, I was 17 years old at the time, and I wanted, you know, Titanic and Goodwill Hunting and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. I revisit this movie, and it really it speaks to me a lot more, and it it impresses me a whole lot more. And I think I'm much, much, much more apt to sit with it. Also, it's funnier than it gets credit for. It's more clever yeah. than it gets credit for. It's really not... I don't walk away from this movie feeling this sort of, like, heavy burden of depression as I remember feeling at the time. And I I feel like some of these negative reviews sort of make it out to be. But I think that's one of those, like, perception is reality kind of things. And the ice storm was never able to shake that, you know, sense of it.
1: Yeah. I also think just because it's, like, chilly doesn't make this movie inaccessible. Like, you can kind of dive into this character. Like, watching it this time, what really struck me was how interesting it kind of is, how angly paces this movie, that, like, almost every single character, it's like, it leaves you wanting just a little bit more from all of them in a way that I think is informative of what it is and is intentional, not like leaving something out. And like, I'm sure we'll talk about it when we get to Sigourney Weaver of it all, but like, for the awards chances of Sigourney Weaver, it's like she's just missing that one scene in the movie to get an Oscar nomination, but I think it makes her character way more interesting. I think it takes... And it's one
0: specific scene, because the movie walks you up to the edge of expecting that this... I mean, we're putting the cart before the horse, but let's just do it. Where you're expecting this mother whose son has just been electrocuted and died... Um, to have this catharsis moment where this chilly, altogether, not nice woman, you know what I mean, in terms of just right. like, you know, what we expect, you know, from from movie characters. We expect her to have this big breakthrough and to cry and to sort of satisfy all of our expectations as filmgoers. And Ang Lee and, you know, and the story, uh, the Rick Moody novel adapted by James Sheamus doesn't give it to us, and doesn't even, like, come close to giving it to us. Right. Well, I
1: think it's a very angry thing that, like, of, like, his perspective on the human conditions, specifically in, like, family dynamics, where it's like, he walks you up to the thing, and you want to know how this character is going to respond, because I don't even necessarily want Sigourney Weaver to have some big emotional thing, but... When her son dies, you wonder, because so much of her responses to things are kind of unexpected, you wonder how she is going to react, and you never get to see it. And it feels yeah. very true yeah. to the type of family dynamics that Ang Lee is trying to talk about in this movie, So where I- it's like— there is a certain unknowability yeah. about people we know very intimately. Yeah.
0: I feel like we've fully like done a memento reverse chronology thing on this uh, this uh podcast episode where we've talked about the end before we got to the beginning. But um let's sort of reset. We're talking about The Ice Storm <laughs> this week, directed by Ang Lee as we've mentioned, written by James Seamus, adapted from the Rick Moody novel, starring Kevin Kline, Joan Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Christina Ricci, Toby Maguire, Elijah Wood, Katie Holmes. It premiered on September twenty sixth, nineteen ninety seven. Chris, let's let's orient our listeners and get everybody back on sort of square one with a sixty second plot description. If you feel like you can hang with it,
1: look, I can hang with it. I am I am out here. I am on a frozen diving board, and you know what. Uh, I'm off the deep end, watching <laughs> that, and into this ice. I don't know.
0: Wow, that would be a, that would be a uh, clip to do. Is Elijah Wood standing on that diving board with the, with the climax from Shallow? You older. want to
1: talk about the unexpected? I just compared myself to Elijah Wood instead of Christina Ricci. <laughs> First never, and only time that will ever never would happen. have seen that coming. Given okay. The opportunity.
0: I am ready with my timer if you are ready with a 60 second plot description of the ice I storm. I am
1: ready. I feel very rusty on this, but <laughs> let's let's give it a go. And go. Okay, so the Ice Storm is about two families. They are neighbors. The main family is the Hoods, led by uh, Joan Allen and Kevin Kline. They have two children: Toby McGuire, who's away at like private school, and Christina Ricci, who's like a developing, developing like her sexual sense. She's fourteen years old, but she's also very politically motivated and obsessed with Nixon and Watergate. Uh, meanwhile, Paul, played by Toby McGuire, is just trying to get laid with. Uh, uh katie holmes's character is named Libby. why because she's a character from a book yep um and then there's also the carver family who kevin klein is having an affair with the mother played by sigourney weaver she's kind of like chilly and caustic in a suburban way but she's also like super hot Ten seconds. um their weird children are elijah wood and adam handburn adam handburn plays sandy who is like um ex- obsessed with blowing things up mikey is the one who's flirting with uh that's elijah wood uh, flirting with christina Time's up. well done um I like how uh, I you didn't call get into like the sexual politics of this. I was just explaining the family. But yeah, like
0: Key Parties 1973 is blowing up all over and the,
1: like end point of the sexual revolution once it finally reaches rich white people yep. in the suburbs and like how they cope or don't cope with it.
0: I like how this movie really makes The Like you said, the sexual revolution as it filters into the rich, yuppie sort of suburban set makes it all feel so drab and and perfunctory and sad. Like, the way these people go about this key party, this is one of the things that Turan sort of bagged on the movie for, is the joyless way these people... Went about this key party, but I'm like, yeah, yeah,
1: that's the friggin' point. It's like <laughs> you know, when memes like finally filter their way to the suburban set on yes. Facebook, and it's, it's like, I saw this joke three years ago. It's the
0: teacher dabbing in eighth grade, yes, <laughs> that part makes it's me laugh so lit. much, but like, it's that,
1: yeah, it's very that. Um, but like, I don't know. I think Ang Lee is after some really, um, subtle things. Like it's really important that this goes on in the Watergate era. And it's like, yeah, the contrast between the sexual explorations in the younger generation in this movie and the adults and just kind of the, like the remove between the two of them where like it's icky intense and kind of almost sinister the way that, um, Child sexuality or teenage sexuality is at play in this movie and then kind of blah. And then when uh, Christina Ricci and Adam Hand Bird kind of like non-hook up, it seems very, very innocent because like you're left questioning if they even did anything. I I love that
0: you call him by the actor's name and not Little Man Tate, which is what I was calling him throughout the Uh entire movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's just Little Man Tate.
1: Uh, Young Robin Williams from Jumanji is who he is in my mind. Well, they cast
0: Um, him. They must have cast him in Little Man Tate because he looks exactly like Jodie Foster. And y'all, he still did as of The Ice Storm. He still looked
1: exactly like Jodie Foster. That kid's like... It's kind of like... The only scene where I'm into how this movie handles that character is the scene between sigourney weaver and him because she like catches him blowing something up and she gives him a whip instead yes gonna blow anything up you can still hurt yourself but you'll figure it out where it's like you can see this mother who seems like she's prickly but actually has some affection for her son and you see her like
0: I'm glad you brought up the Nixon and Watergate stuff though because I feel like that's a huge thread going through this movie. We see right. Christina Ricci's character as like hugely like up in arms about Watergate and is sort of following it obsessively and the parents don't want to talk about it in a way that reflects I feel like the the sexual exploration going on in this movie too where like these kids are screaming out for some kind of direction in terms of, like, their sexual lives, because, like, they have nothing to do but sort of, like, strike out blindly because they have no idea what's going on. The only time we ever see these attempts at parenting along these lines are incredibly awkward. One of them is Kevin Klein giving Toby Maguire this, like, uh, responsible masturbation talk that ultimately comes down to, like, don't jerk off in the shower because it wastes water. And then...
1: Yeah, and don't do it on the linens, which is the like, ickiest thing I've ever heard. I don't, like... And then
0: the other part is one of my favorite scenes, which is when Sigourney Weaver walks in on, um, uh, Wendy, Christina Ricci's character, and Little Man Tate when doing the, like, show me yours, I'll show you mine thing, and she sort of pulls Christina Ricci out of the bathroom, and then you think she's gonna, like, scold her, or yell at her, or be like, stay away from my son. And she mostly just sort of has this ham-handed... Tongue tied kind of uh, roundabout way of talking to her about how young people's bodies are their temples and the like. She's
1: trying to be supportive slash progressive, but also be like, "You shouldn't be doing this." But But she also goes into this pretentious way. Well, she
0: goes into this like Margaret Mead, like the tribes of Samoa kind of a dissertation about like you know they send they send these people they send these young people out into the wild and and they don't come back until they've learned a thing or two i was just like what are you talking about these kids are so confused as it is they're only getting more confused but i thought that was a great scene and sort of indicative of what's happening in this movie kind a... of
1: where i was at watching this movie i have to say i recently watched um todd salons's happiness for the first yeah. time so it's like i'm getting a whole lot of sexual mores in the suburbs. and that would have been the next oh, year right that was that was 98 right uh, yes yeah. yes um And it's just, like, we were so into these kind of movie. I mean, like, they're very different movies, but, like, these kind of themes and exploring. And then, of course, like, it all came to at least an Oscar head with American Beauty. Yeah. um, In a way that was very palatable to Oscar, and that's the one that finally gets rewarded for it. But there's, like, this trend in the mid to late 90s of these suburban dramas that deal with, like, sex and generational um, differences in like approaches to like politics yeah. and like, the culture of the suburbs. When we and, talked about Suburbicon... It's definitely one of the better ones.
0: Yes, I agree. When we talked about Suburbicon, I mentioned how Blue Velvet kind of salted the earth behind it a little bit in terms of being shocking about the seamy underbelly of the suburbs. And I think a movie like The Ice Storm succeeds to me because it goes to that next level of like everything like the suburbs is the sort of just like this placid icy exterior and beneath it are these roiling weird lives but all but the ice storm is just like it's all kind of sad isn't it and like a little pathetic and a little funny and i don't think i don't think this movie sneers at its characters though i think this movie has a remove to it, but it's a removed empathy where this movie sort of like, I don't think it's laughing at what's happening to Joan Allen. I don't think it's judging. The closest it comes to judging a character is probably Sigourney Weaver's character in that she is, we ultimately, as we mentioned, we don't get that scene of her at the end. And I feel like that maybe robs her a little bit of, audience sympathy that maybe she does
1: deserve. She also doesn't really have a scene, whereas I think some of the other characters do, that kind of just illustrate, this is who I am. And it's more so in the performance. She's just the mean... On the page, she does not have as much as these other people do. Whereas you get the Joan Allen character who it's like, you see the scene where she goes and shoplifts some stuff and gets busted. Well, and she's like,
0: she's talking to the like hippie priest who is sort of trying to subtly hit on her. And we, I just think we have so much, we have so much baked in sympathy for Joan Allen as it is, especially at this stage of her career, which we'll talk about in a second. But I don't think we get that Sigourney Weaver is is a woman who we have always, Seen as this, like, pillar of strength, or alternatively, like in Working Girl, where she's, like, actively a villain, right? So we don't have that kind of built-in need to take care of a Sigourney Weaver character, which, in some ways, I find thrilling in this movie. The way... Everything about the way she styled in this movie is thrilling to me—from like her hair to her outfits to her earrings to like everything—and then (laughs) down to like the way she picks up the keys from the bowl at the key party, where it's this like there's this like long sort of like whippy boondoggle attached to the keychain that she ends up. She picks Glenn Fitzgerald's key uh, keys. He's sort of the young one in this group of key partiers and his sort of youth is a threat to kevin klein who really wanted his keys picked but she picks up these keys and she sort of like twists this boondoggle around her finger as she like whips the keys out of the bowl in this like one fluid motion and i'm just like that's fucking like that's your best moment in the movie
1: kind of yeah it's it's she's great best moment in the movie is when like and it's like one of the like I think this was the production still for every like review or magazine article that I saw about this movie before I actually saw the film itself is her with that fur coat out on her deck holding that bull.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I thought you were going to say her
0: and Kevin Kline in bed together, which I feel like was also a production still where she ends up being like, you're boring me when he tries to like sort of drones on and on about his like problems at the office and this guy who's bugging him and how much he doesn't want to golf. And she's just like, I have a husband. That is not why I'm with you. I don't need, I don't feel like I particularly need another husband. And I was just like, it's so, it's so cold and, and mean, but yet like apt. And it's, and, and to, to the character's credit and the film's credit, Klein's character is just like you know what you're right like yeah that is not why we're doing this um but it's interesting so Sigourney Weaver gets probably the farthest in awards season for this movie she gets a Golden Globe nomination for Best Supporting Actress is the film's only Golden Globe nomination and ultimately it gets no Oscar nominations and it's a little bit It's puzzling and it's not. I think when we talked about this film's reception and it being sort of like, you know, received as the cold technical achievement, right? It's the kind of thing that, it's the kind of criticism that gets lobbed at a movie like Carol, which we saw recently, which Carol still got six ancillary Oscar nominations, but it didn't get Best Picture, Best Director, which is sort of what we thought it was going to get. And relative to the praise that it got from the critical community it was seen as a letdown. This was a lot... The Ice Storm was a lot more complete of a shutout. But going into Oscar season, it had been a hit at Cannes. Seamus had won the screenplay prize at Cannes. And going into the fall, it's Ang Lee coming off of Sense and Sensibility, which is big. It's Sigourney Weaver, who is at this point a three-time nominee who had never won and had never won in a way where like she was hugely expected to win one of her two nominations in 1988. And she came up empty handed. She was like one of the rare at the time double nominees to not win when she was nominated in 1988 for supporting for working girl and lead for gorillas in the mist. And she lost them both. And so I feel like there was a strong narrative Oscar narrative around Sigourney Weaver, at least in the 80s. By 1997, that's probably cooled down a bit. And then you have Joan Allen, who, at this point in 1997, had been a supporting actress nominee two years running, 1995 for Nixon, 1996 for The Crucible, and by all accounts, Oscar voters loved her. And it's surprising to me that the pedigree for that talent, plus Seamus winning the, the Cannes screenplay prize that it didn't get nominated anywhere was a shock to me. I, I don't think know. it's
1: pretty shocking. I mean, there's I think some of it is this movie does a lot better particularly in this era of Oscar when it doesn't happen in the year of Titanic. Yeah. Because you have Titanic and then you have all of the other movies chasing to catch up um, or just trying to get their foot in there because Titanic is so far ahead. I mean, yes, we won't see another movie at the Oscars like Titanic in a long... I don't know when that'll ever happen again, the way the Oscar culture has kind of changed to, the... like, spreading the wealth, but the way that this movie is going to run the gamut. So it's like the all narratives... of these small movies, particularly in the 90s, when, like, we're coming off of the, like... Fargo English patient years where it's like the big major studios can't really get a foothold and it's like the independents are starting to break out you have like Miramax really coming into the fold so yeah Yeah. everybody was chasing Titanic this year. I
0: think the, the narratives in the 1997 Oscar race 1997 is one of the most fun and interesting Oscar years to follow, even though it ended up being such a blowout for Titanic. But I think the narratives are so strong there. Titanic being the $200 million behemoth who everybody thought was going to fall flat on its face, and sort of, you know, Ishtar itself. And then it didn't. And it became such a hit that there was... So little oxygen for everything else. And then behind that, Goodwill Hunting, which also had this huge narrative with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, and you know, the sort of like the Miramaxness of that movie, Miramax having been such a hot studio up until now, had just won Best Picture the year before with the English patient. That was such a huge story. And there really was only room for one kind of indie counterpoint, sort of like small movie counterpoint. And that was LA Confidential in a huge way, where like LA Confidential essentially sweeps the Critics Awards and becomes like the non Titanic. Cinephile option for 1997. Mm -hmm. Where if you are a snob and you think that Titanic is a big load of poo and it's poorly written and you can't believe that all these people are getting the wool pulled over their eyes and Hollywood is too money obsessed and it's too glitzy and yada, 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 LA Confidential is your movie. Like Boogie Nights is there, but that's not, you know, you don't have room for that. It's a a little
1: extreme for Oscar, but like, and The Sweet Hereafter is is a little too
0: small. And The Wings of the Dove is mostly just about Helena Bonham Carter. Like, if you want an alternative to Titanic, your only recourse is L.A. Confidential. And I think The Ice Storm felt that, where just, like, there is no room for for more than one alternative to Titanic. And The Ice Storm was never going to be it anyway. I think L.A. Confidential captured,
1: you know... It was a more We're exciting about movie. about a lot of other movies, too, that are way more emotionally accessible more like attuned to wider like mainstream tastes even boogie nights which at the time like felt controversial because it was the puritanical like way more puritanical than it is now that like we probably wouldn't have a problem about a movie about the porn industry but in the 90s it was definitely an impediment to yeah that movie doing better than it did but um Yeah, like, even something like Jackie Brown, which only got Robert Forster nominated, but, like, a lot of these things are less remote than the ice storm. Like, it goes back to that thing of it being kind of chilly, like, so... Something like Goodwill Hunting that makes people feel good. Yeah. Or at least invests them emotionally is easier for Oscar to vote for, unfortunately. The fact that uh-huh. Jackie
0: Brown ended up with only that one nomination, it being the hugely anticipated Tarantino follow up to to Pulp Fiction. That was the cover movie for that year's Entertainment Weekly fall preview issue. It was so, so, so anticipated. And again, the exact wrong year to come up with Jackie Brown because again Titanic was the narrative and Jackie Brown just could not muster a counter narrative because it was pretty you know downbeat and you know and minor key and it for you know for a movie that includes a Samuel L Jackson monologue about machine guns and whatnot but still right um I think. I mean,
1: I also think even there's certain elements like you mentioned, the Wings of the Dove, which is like this costume drama with Helena Bonham Carter. There, I think there's other examples that year, um, like Mrs. Brown, where like it's the type of thing that people like to aesthetically enjoy. Like even Gattaca is a nominee this year, and I think while all of the production design, the costume design elements of this movie, like are really woven into the fabric to create something very authentic in the ice storm. It never calls attention to itself in any kind of formative way. And maybe we weren't kind of ready or Oscar wasn't ready for this kind of subtlety as Ang Lee was delivering it because you can see similar approaches to things like costume design in Brokeback Mountain and it took six more years for Brokeback Mountain to be appreciated right. for the nuance of what right. Ang Lee is going for right. in a authorial way. Right.
0: The other thing is, and I think in a sort of less heralded, more low-key reason why I, The Ice Storm wasn't able to catch on, was it was a Fox Searchlight movie, and it had unexpected in-house competition from that year's sort of surprise insurgent movie which ended up being the full monty which is another searchlight movie it's a summer premiere it, it is just this odd little live. british it movie with money. a funny little title about you know middle-aged men stripping for their union and
1: Boy. People forget how beloved the Full Monty. I think people kind of forget the Full Monty period, but people forget how much people loved that movie. Oh, I mean, it was
0: a sensation. It, it became it a ran musical. The BAFTA gamut. Yeah. Keep in
1: mind, BAFTA didn't even give any prizes to Titanic whatsoever, and they gave their best picture to Full Monty. This is uh, at like the beginning of Oscar convergence and BAFTA. The BAFTAs um,
0: weirdly were a lot friendlier to the Ice Storm. The BAFTAs I think gave they, the they Ice gave
1: Storm. It to, they gave Sigourney Weaver Supporting Actress, but yes, there were also yeah. no Oscar nominees in that lineup.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Who are the other nominees? Do you have it in front the of you? The other
1: nominees. I do have it pulled The up. BAFTA for Supporting Actress. The they only have four. Um, it was the winner, Sigourney Weaver for The Ice Storm, Leslie Sharp for Full Monty, Zoe Wanamaker for Wilde, and Jennifer Ely for Wilde.
0: This is back when the BAFTAs were still very much closed ranks British, which, honestly, I kind of long for those days. You know I like it when the different precursors are very much their own thing. And the BAFTAs are too beholden to the Oscars these days, and they don't
1: like Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I mean, you can still see where... The weight behind BAFTA was converging with like some voter overlap, like Mrs. Brown did very well. Yeah. Um, the, the dub did really well. But that still uh, felt like the I... Oscars
0: were following the BAFTA's lead and not the other way around.
1: Can I make you freak out for a second? Please. Major uh, BAFTA winner this year, a movie we both love. Can you guess their best director winner?
0: Hmm. A movie we both love...
1: We both love Oscar nominee, but not nearly nominated enough because Oscar was fully not ready for this movie.
0: Oh. Indie?
1: No. It's not even really British. Like, that's the thing about this movie doing so well. Like, BAFTA got it right. Contact? Absolutely not. No, I don't (laughs) think Contact is even nominated. I'm trying
0: to think of, like, the also-rans in 1997. Wag the Dog? That's not really British at all.
1: No. It, I will just give it to you because yeah. you are not on the right path. No. The multiple BAFTA winner this year, but the winner for Best Director, Baz Luhrmann for William Shakespeare's <gasps> Romeo Plus Juliet.
0: Whoa! So they did it the year wow. later, because Romeo Plus Juliet
1: was 1996 in the United States. Right. But, like, it's kind of, at least my memory of it, like, you could reduce it down to a Shakespeare thing. Um, sure. And, like, just what the culture of like reviving Shakespeare is in Britain. But like my memory of Romeo plus Juliet, William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet, was like it was seen by like the academic Shakespeare community as like a full bastardization as just and just gross. Yeah. So like that is surprising to me. Maybe my memory is wrong about that. But yeah, yeah Baz Lerman won Best Director that year against Curtis Hanson, Peter Cattaneo for Full Monty, and James Cameron for Titanic. That's wild.
0: So yeah, so the Full Monty being this sort of insurgent, populist hit pretty much closes off The in terms of who's Fox Search Lake going to campaign for, they had a winner in Full Monte. There was no indication that people
1: loved the ice storm, and I think choices were made. And ultimately, well, this is a talking point I feel like I bring up a lot, and it's a nuance that not a lot of people consider, particularly. And when we even today, when we look at these smaller studios, we're not with the Ice Storm versus Full Monty, we're not talking about the Fox Searchlight of today that right. can get multiple Oscars for The Shape right. of Water and three billboards in right. the same year. Right. We're talking about this was their third year of existence. This was the first Oscar nominations
0: they ever got
1: were this year. Yeah. 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 For the Full Monty. Yes. Um, so it's like when you don't have the infrastructure or the bandwidth to devote to multiple movies, it. Inevitably, one of your movies gets hurt. Agreed. Even uh, you see it to a certain extent with Netflix, which I think they are just trying to stick to their ponies because they would rather, you know, be successful at one than have like try multiple things and fail. And this is this year because is going like, to be a challenge. Last year, right? Should this have year... had the push.
0: This year is going to be a challenge to that because they're going to have Scorsese, who's going to demand the lion's share of attention, but also like. D Reese with her follow up to Mudbound which was a huge Oscar breakthrough for Netflix. Like they're going to have to support that too. And so they're going to have find to find a way to walk TV and shoot them at the year. same time.
1: They're going yeah. to have a Noah Bomb back film this year. They're going to have Yeah. It will be interesting to see how it plays out. Agreed. Um if they'll just go like they did last year with Roma, if they really just kind of support the one. Agreed. But it could be the type of thing where they didn't really do much for Buster Scruggs, but Buster Scruggs turned out just fine. Yeah. It got three nominations. Yep, exactly.
0: All right, I want to talk about Joan Allen, because I feel like, in a weird way, she is kind of the... She's always the first thing I think of when I think about the ice storm, and in particular, how she was pretty much shut out of the Best Actress conversation this year, even when it came to like insurgents into the race. Like I feel like when even mm-hmm. like when alternatives were talked about... It wasn't even her. So the the Best Actress Final Five ended up being Helen Hunt, who won. She won basically everything. She won the Golden Globe. She won the SAG. She was sort of the big TV star who was making her ascent to film. She's really good and as good as it gets. I know that Oscar win sort of has aged a little bit, strangely, because she never really became a movie star. And that 2000 thing where she was in... Four or five movies, and they were all sort of middling, or her performances and were them were sort of middling.
1: None of them served her.
0: Yes. And so, and then she kind of went away. So I feel like this best actress win feels like it has a little bit of tarnish on it, but I think she's actually really good and as good as it gets. I don't know about you.
1: I think she's good. I mean, especially for kind of what that movie's doing. I think there's like, for me, knowing that that role was supposedly written for Holly Hunter yeah. makes me yeah. just. Speeches- Want Holly Hunter? Sure, but yeah. um, no, I think she's really good in that movie. I think like that movie itself doesn't age well, especially some of the ways that that character is written and portrayed. But I don't think any of that's her fault.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Um, other nominees: Judy Dench. This was her first Oscar nomination. She she won the Golden Globe Drama that year, if I'm not oh. mistaken. And um, Baffin. For for playing Queen Victoria and Mrs. Brown, she was this was a big sort of breakthrough. I think for you know her, we had our, our we had ourselves a new sort of British grand dame to worship and worship we mm-hmm. did because she kept getting Oscar nominations. Thereafter, she
1: doesn't win the Shakespeare and Love Oscar without Mrs. Brown
0: oh people don't. totally
1: absolutely people don't I, remember that but half of not. the
0: Shakespearean love win was oh we you know we felt a little bit like we owed her from the previous year absolutely uh julie christie gets a oh julie christie is back nomination for afterglow which is a movie that fully nobody saw including all the people who
1: nominated her but i think Very everybody to see it now like if you want to catch up to your like best actress blind spots like that's not a easy movie to get your hands on. I haven't what been able I've to. I, to do. yeah,
0: um, But everybody, I think, just sort of trusted that, like, yeah, Julie Christie would be good in a role like that, sure. Um, Kate Winslet for Titanic, who at the time I was hugely in the bag for. I was really, really rooting for Kate Winslet, even among even as somebody who I remember being like, eh, DiCaprio's good, but Kate Winslet is great. Um, mm-hmm. I think you saw her sometimes sort of struggling to get out of the straitjacket of the script that James Cameron had handed her for that movie. I think some of the dialogue in that movie is really hard to make sound believable, and she does it every time. And I think she's wonderful in that movie. I think knowing what we know about how the rest of her career went out. There's a few times where I feel like we all think, like, ah, if only she had won then, we wouldn't have this weird taste in our mouth of her winning for the reader. And I think this is one of those times. I think this was where her career, this was only her second nomination. She had only just broken through, speaking of Ang Lee, um, two years before with the Sense and Sensibility nomination. So there's definitely the sense of, like, her being the star of Titanic and having her career blow up as it's going to was the reward, Like there wasn't any great need to give her the Oscar as well, but she's great in that movie. And then Helena Bonham Carter, who up until this point had been kind of a supporting actress in Merchant Ivory stuff and The Wings of the Dove, or just
1: like damsel roles that don't really offer much for her. Frankenstein,
0: remember her being in the in the the Kenneth Branagh Frankenstein.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, She's mostly just asked to be pretty until this movie. Which I haven't seen, but I know it's on Hulu right now, and I do want to watch it.
0: It's interesting, because it's it's still a costume drama, but the role itself is a big departure in terms of she really gets to be kind of a villainous... It's a little bit of a of a Glenn Close in Dangerous Liaisons kind of a thing, where she's scheming, mm-hmm. and there's sort of a more uh, innocent woman who she you know be friends but also praise upon she's wonderful in it it's honestly late 90s helena bonham carter the pre tim burton era of helena bonham carter was very exciting because it was this and then two years later it was fight club which was another movie that really right. upended her her reputation as an
1: actress well and how we perceive her as well right. and that it kind of cemented this transition for her yes
0: Oh, it was so exciting. Genuinely exciting. And she got a lot of critical awards. She won the Los Angeles Film Critics Award for Best Actress. Julie Christie had won the New York Film Critics Award. Um, But Helena Carter won LA and also the National Board of Review. And so I think those were your five. Ultimately, I don't think any of them was a shock come Oscar nomination morning. I think some people sort of doubted whether Christie could hold on for a movie that was so small but i think the other the other choices in that race people talked about Jodie Foster for contact they talked about Pam Grier for Jackie Brown which would have been a great nomination i know she was this-
1: probably the 6th place
0: right That's probably true. Golden Globe nominees that year were Jennifer Lopez and Selena, which, looking back, would have been a great nomination. Joey Lauren Adams for Chasing Amy, which is one of my favorite Golden Globe nominees, which is, it was never going to happen for Oscar, but I'm glad that that movie got its moment somewhere. I I mean, that was the closest anything Kevin Smith made ever came to an awards movie. And I feel like one of these years, one of these times, we need to talk about Chasing Amy, because I have a lot of that that movie is weirdly prominent in my origin story, so <laughs> I want to talk about that a little bit. Julia Roberts in My Best Friend's Wedding. We all know how much I love Julia Roberts in My Best Friend's Wedding. Uh, Jessica Lange got a Best Actress nomination for A Thousand Acres, which I even forgot.
1: Nine thousand percent talk about eventually. One yes,
0: a million percent true. So there was all of all of that. Um, Jodie Foster was the runner up for the Los Angeles Film Critics Best Actress award and I do wonder if she had gotten that whether that would have been enough to sort of vault her into that field. I think that's a great performance but it's also there's a lot to there's a lot there's there's enough stuff to make fun of in Contact that I think it would have been a little bit of a divisive nomination. But it surprises me that Joan Allen wasn't anywhere for this even though like i said nixon and then the crucible a little bit
1: of category confusion because like you could easily see them mounting her in supporting as well opposite sigourney weaver but maybe they kind of got out of the way i don't know because uh, i yeah would i say she's maybe one of the leads of the movie yes but she maybe shares an equal weight with like christina ricci in this movie yeah so i wonder if people thought maybe she wasn't a lead Maybe. There like, are ways that people can kind of look at these things.
0: I suppose that's, that's a possibility. It's just, I think the fact that she was such a strong contender in 95 for Nixon, I think probably was the runner-up to Sorvino that year. She was so good in The Crucible that even though that movie kind of crashed and burned as an Oscar play, she still got nominated. And... Then she follows those two up with two incredibly, like, Oscar bait friendly roles in The Ice Storm this year and Pleasantville the year after, and gets essentially blanked for both of them, which I think she got a couple critics' things for Pleasantville, so at least she wasn't, like, fully shut out for that. But it's wild to me that neither one of them got, uh, got a nomination for her, especially because she came back with a nomination in 2000 for The Contender, so it's not like the Oscars were done with her. So it's it's one of those, you know, odd things with her and the Oscars. It's also that run, I always like to think of that run, and like Boy, did Joan Allen go through a rough patch of movie husbands where it's like (laughs) married to Richard Nixon, married to like John Proctor and ends up like going through all of that she had with Proctor, married to Kevin Klein, who's cheating on her in the ice storm, married to is it that she's married?
1: Sexless Bill Macy. What's that? Sexless William Sexless Bill
0: Macy in Pleasantville. Is it that she's married to Travolta in Face Off and Nicolas Cage captures her or the other way around?
1: Okay, so... The face-off, she is married to Travolta, but then has to, like, when the face swap happens, she has to, like, have allegiance with Nicolas Cage, who is really John Travolta. Explaining (laughs) face-off, I cannot believe how they, like, reduced that campaign down to so simple, because it is, like, such a simple pitch. But it's, like, it's the most convoluted movie ever. I've never seen it. I've never, ever seen it. Joseph. I
0: know, I know. It's weird. It's weird. Face-off.
1: Hits, slams, slaps, <laughs> fuck so hard. Face off is great. Um, you face
0: off. You also have her husband in the upside of anger who just like wandered off one day and fell into a ditch and they never found him for like a year. And then I feel like her one good husband her husband and the contender stood by her, right? I feel like that was her like good movie I, husband. Yes. yes. Right? Who played that guy? Hold on a second. Let me look. Handsome. he's
1: not a factor in the narrative of the movie but oh. i think that the very final shot of the movie is them hugging
0: it's robin thomas who was like huge sure. like feckless husband hey it's that guy and yet he managed to like be the upstanding one in that movie that's a good movie the contender's is a good movie It is anyway
1: We've it before joan allen famously here's what i want to say about joan allen joan allen
0: wait her husband he, in room was also william h macy
1: Oh yeah. Well I never made
0: I never made the Pleasantville connection.
1: I think I did at the time, but then when you see the movie and like William H. Macy has one scene. Yeah.
0: yeah. I know, but still.
1: Here's the thing about Joan Allen. Joan Allen, we talk a lot about how Hollywood and film even independent filmmakers film fail actresses of a certain age, and it sucks and it is terrible. Joan Allen like quickly fell into these like bureaucrat roles like you have the born series to thank for that and like she just doesn't get the opportunities and it felt for a while that she was an inevitability and now it's like where's the roles for it like i almost kind of was rooting for her in room when that happened because yeah. there were people thinking she could be nominated for supporting actress yep totally i think in a vacuum when that movie happens for A24 further down the line where they have more cemented Oscar history they right. could have gotten her nomination but because it's a good performance, I like that movie I feel like people hate that movie now in a way that I did never really saw when it...
0: that The backlash opened. on that movie and on Brie Larson in that movie is really irksome to me because I don't feel like it's justified and I, I don't feel like the people who backlashed against it ever gave a good enough reason beyond... This is a, you know, ascendant young actress who we're resentful of for reasons.
1: I get that people think that Brie Larson only has one temperature, but like, I don't know, play to your suits. There's so many actors who get like a free pass Leonardo DiCaprio for doing one thing all the time. Also, Uh, I
0: don't know if I fully believe that, because if you look at her in something like short term 12 and you look at her in something like and I know Scott Pilgrim, it's essentially a cameo. But, like, the energy there it could not be more different.
1: Yeah. I'm excited to see what she is like with Charlie Kaufman. I think she'll be great. Yeah. Um, um, but Joan Allen, yes. like, it's such a bummer. The role she gets now. Like, you gave me her for IMDb game in one of our earlier episodes. And one of her four Death titles. Race. Fucking Death Race. Yeah. Joan Allen should not be in Death Race.
0: I think she got sucked into the Born thing and then people started seeing her as like, oh, you're going to be like the the lady boss, right? You're going to be the woman standing up with her arms crossed behind a desk barking out orders into a speakerphone.
1: Who initially is supposed to be like villain because she's a lady but then because she's a lady and she has some humanity she's on the side of like the wronged hero like Jason Bourne and it's like I don't know she's still good in those roles she's great and like I don't know what do you want to see Joan Allen do now Like,
0: like who do I want to see her work with
1: I don't know I mean I would like to see someone give her something that uses her to her capacities like Pleasantville yeah. But like, I guess the one that comes to mind, and I am not here to relitigate this movie. But like, guys, the wife would have been a lot better if that <laughs> was a Joan Allen. Villain. You know, I'm not gonna argue with you there.
0: I think that movie has to have a better script, and you know, the Jonathan Price character has to be performed better. But like, like, because like, the problem with the wife wasn't Glenn Close. But I would, I would love to see Joan Allen. In a in a movie like that, in a role that gets that much spotlight. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I would take that. Or give her like a really good she's done some TV, but like give her like her own TV show that she gets to like fucking kill. She was
0: very good in that season of the killing that she was on when everybody had decided they weren't watching the killing anymore. Which was (laughs) like the fourth season of it. And I think by that point had it moved to Netflix, maybe I don't know, but she was the head master of a military academy, and one of the boys there was accused of murder and she's she was a colonel, she was an army colonel, and she was great, like she was fully great she's also i mean I hesitate to bring this up, but she did go through a a phase of like she had some You know, injectables that made her face look like not her face and that kind of a thing. And I feel like she's maybe made it
1: to the other side of that. And people are just fucking mean about that type of thing, too.
0: They are. And I, I, it just, it frustrates me that, you know, there was a certain era
1: that, like, it happened to her and it did affect the roles that people got because of meanness, but also, like, it was this double edged sword of where it's like, there's this false demand that says that women have to do this, but then they get shunned for it and it's disgusting. And there was that definitely like her peak time of when it could have happened for her overlapped with that.
0: Yeah. I think there are definitely, there are avenues for her to come back. And I don't want it to just be like a Blythe dinner and I'll see you in my dreams kind of a thing, but like those movies are great. And Joan Allen, as I mean, Joan Allen's already done the sort of like mid to late in life second chance at love thing in the Upside of Anger, and she was a plus wonderful in it, and she's very good at that. So, yeah, I think there's, I think there's, or like the Tilda Swinton role in a Michael Clayton kind of a movie.
1: Yeah, you know what I mean, something like that. I also want to in the vein, but like there's a slight twist to what she's doing right that makes it special
0: i want to dip back into sigourney weaver for a second because i didn't really get into the 1997 supporting actress nominees because weaver i do feel like if you were making a list weaver would have been sixth that year because if you look at the golden globe nominees it's four women it's basinger who ended up winning for la confidential it's um sorry Julianne Moore for Boogie Nights, Gloria Stewart for Titanic, who were, like... Julianne Moore was, like, the critics' favorite, I feel like, that yeah. year. She won the Los Angeles... She was Angeles... Safely
1: number three everywhere.
0: She was the Los Angeles Film Critics Award uh, winner. The The New York Film Critics went for Joan Cusack, who was also a Golden Globe nominee. And then Weaver was the fifth. At SAG, Basinger and Gloria Stewart tied for the win. That was when it started to look like the, the sort of... Sympathy factor for Gloria Stewart being, you know, the oldest nominee, and and you know Titanic was so popular, and that character was so popular that it looked like for a second that Gloria Stewart was going to pull out the Oscar win. She ultimately doesn't. Um, Minnie Driver gets nominated for Goodwill Hunting at the SAGs. She's sort of new to the race. Julianne Moore still gets hold- held over from the Globes, and then Allison Elliott. As the other woman in *The Wings of the Dove* is the fifth nominee there. She was Which is somebody so interesting because she didn't even show up at BAFTA. She was somebody who nobody really expected to make the Oscar top five. She was one of those like weird SAG calls that like, it's like Robin Wright Penn
1: calls go back all the way back, you guys. Yep,
0: Robin Wright Penn was nominated that same year as lead actress, and she's so lovely. And that's another one where like. Yeah, nobody really expects the Oscars to pick up on that one either. But so if you wanted to talk about like the vulnerable fifth nominee at the Oscars that year, it was probably either Minnie Driver or Joan Cusack. And I think if I'm talking about who I would want to replace with Sigourney Weaver in that lineup, it is not remotely Minnie Driver or Joan Cusack or Julianne the winner,
1: Moore Kim or
0: it's Gloria Stewart. It's one of those two who were essentially the front runners. I feel like the front runners that year were the two weakest nominees. Although sometimes I feel like Joan Cusack, I'm happier that Joan Cusack got that nomination on principle than I am in practice. I think if she had been nominated for something like Adam's Family Values, I'm fully on board. I think that's a Brilliant and groundbreaking comedic performance. I don't know if I walk away from In N Out being like, God, I love that John Cusack performance.
1: I think that that was a movie that, like, she probably benefited from that movie being kind of a fringe, like, prestige comedy player because it's also Kevin Klein in the same year. Yeah. But it's like, it's too broad for Oscar to really take it so like i am not going to begrudge any comedy well, that, nomination and
0: that's i think where it comes down to for me and for a lot of people was i'm certainly not going to begrudge the rare pure comedy nomination from a great comedic actress like joan cusack and i think for as much as at the time i think people sort of looked down on that mini driver nomination as she was you know pulled along by the ben and matt story and by You know, Robin Williams and Gus Van Sant, and you know, Harvey Weinstein, and you know, you look back on that, and it's like, fuck all you people for first of all, perpetuating a narrative of an actress being like, oh, she's the one who was dragged along. Nobody else, everybody else got it by their own, you know, chutzpah and, and artistic achievement, but Minnie Driver's the one who
1: was dragged along.
0: Second of all, she's fucking awesome in that movie she yeah
1: that that romance doesn't work at all if she's not as good as she is
0: million percent true a million percent true she's so good in that movie her oscar narrative that year bums me out severely in that she was dumped by matt damon on oprah which she was i forgot this he was on oprah and he mentioned that he uh that he and, and Minnie Driver were not dating anymore. She was watching television and, like, news to me. And I believe he started dating Winona Ryder right after her. And so, and, like, were, like, appearing at, like, events and things. And so she had to go through her, at to date, her one and only Oscar, you know, Oscar nominee season as a nominee, supporting the same movie, not only the same movie that her ex-boyfriend was in but the movie that her ex-boyfriend wrote and produced and was getting awards for and was getting full credit for and so you watch her in the audience at the Oscars that year while they're like hooting and hollering up there on stage and whatever and she is just has the most over it expression on her face And on one level, I'm just like, yes.
1: Like, fucking. Not just a national treasure, a global, an intergalactic treasure, Mini Drive. I adore her.
0: I adore her. So, what else? What else about the ice storm that we want to talk about? I think Seamus, it's unfortunate that he wasn't able to parlay the Cannes Prize into an Oscar nomination for adapted screenplay, although that's a pretty good lineup that year, too. We're like, it's LA Confidential, which was never going to lose. Uh, and then it's a bunch of movies, well, The Wings of the Dove, which I think, you know, was probably pulled along by the strength of Helena Bonham Carter's performance, and that's fine, but, like, I, wa- I want to live in a world where the sweet Hereafter, Wag the Dog, and Donnie Brasco all get screenplay nominations. I don't know which of those I would cut. Maybe Wings yeah. of the Dove.
1: I think it's really strange that there's no screenplay nomination for this movie because like everything that it does so well thematically is like, I feel like not to discredit Ang Lee and what Ang Lee has done here, but I feel like it's so set up by what James Seamus was able to do on the page. Of all
0: the Ang Lee, James Seamus like things that they made together. This one feels the most Seamus. Yeah. Also like the, the, Word at the time was that Rick Moody, the author of the book, was so happy with the way that the adaptation went that he like wept during the end credits of the movie in like joy yeah. so like this was a incredibly successful adaptation um James Seamus is a guy who I will always have immense good feelings for a lot of it is again, I have this Pavlovian response to focus features where you know it was there <laughs> for me when I needed them and <laughs> And I will always love and appreciate Focus Features. I know he was sort of forced out of that company in 2013, and genuinely, it hasn't been the same since he's gone. But it's still there, still making good movies, but it's not, I don't have that emotional connection to Focus anymore. I think, I don't know, Seamus feels like one of the good guys and one of the sort of like, you know, he feels like a pure soul. I don't know if I'm reading things into him, but maybe it's the bow ties. I don't know. <laughs>
1: i don't know i guess the other things that i would leave this feels like one of the most in-depth like oscar conversations we've had because it's like there's so much that is like shocking that this movie didn't really land on awards wise like this didn't even have any spirit nominations which is strange to me i mean you're talking about the only real Oscar crossover, at least this year and this era of the Indie Spirits, was like, you have The Apostle and Yulie's Gold um, doing well there. The Apostle was actually their Best Picture winner. And um, the Julie Christie performance for Afterglow. And then other than that, is like fully movies that have faded away and are gone. But like, you can't crap on this lineup because they also have a Best Picture nomination for Waiting for Guffman. For Waiting for um,
0: Guffman, they gave... Eve's Bayou, Best First Feature, which like, that's great. Look at that lineup for Best First Feature. It's Eve's Bayou, Heart Eight, Paul Thomas Anderson, In the Company of Men. That's a you know, it's it's a really this was a great era for the Independent Spirit Awards because much like the with the BAFTAs, it felt like they were pushing the Oscars along rather than running to catch up with the Oscars.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And like I feel like Duval and Fonda they're both in a in a sort of specific situation where they're already big names that are popular with oscars duval for himself as a former winner peter fonda if not for his own sake for his you know family name which is a huge you know hollywood institution and and both his father and sister were multiple oscar winners between them and but i also feel like that that best actor lineup being Nicholson, Duval, Fonda, Dustin Hoffman for *Wag the Dog*, and then you know the four vets with young young man Matt Damon was one of my favorite narratives that year. Um, ultimately, Nicholson winning, but I think Duval and Fonda feel like they were propelled there in part by the
1: Independent Spirit Awards. The status, well, yeah, and like those were successful, like true independent movies of those of that time like that's why it's i guess surprising to me that the ice storm yeah isn't in indie spirits anywhere because like there's i don't know maybe it was seen as too prominent or something like there was a decisive like go for the smaller movies and like god chasing amy got a
0: lot in this one kevin smith wins best screenplay jason lee wins best supporting male and yet, no Joey Lauren Adams in female lead, because the spirits are, if nothing else, enigmatic. <laughs> so I would
1: also say we could maybe talk a little bit about the um, like teenage performances in the Ice Storm. Because, okay, let me say, it wasn't like the <laughs> Oscar thing that drew me to the Ice Storm when I first saw it. I was, in my youth, and could be now, given the right project, a hardcore Christina Ricci stan. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Like, girl, I had a Gold Diggers poster in my bedroom. I loved Christina Ricci. And Christina Ricci is pretty good in this movie. And I, she... I was like... I remember being precocious and uh, some might say foolish uh, youngster and saying, why did Sigourney Weaver have the (laughs) expertise for this? It should have been Christina Ricci, which of course is maybe insane, but I do think that she's good. And in comparison to, I think, the younger male actors in this movie, she's just running laps around them. Christina
0: Ricci's performance of adolescence as her, as a career sort of performance art project in her life where she goes from Casper Self-aware Casper, and now and then in 1995 to yeah. the opposite of sex in Buffalo 66 in 1998 and with the ice storm as like the midpoint in between those two is a wild, wild testament to how much children change during those formative teenage years. It's crazy. Because remember her nineteen ninety eight she had it was those two movies and it was also Pecker, the uh the John, John Waters. Waters. Movie. And by the time we got to those nineteen ninety eight movies, certainly with the opposite of sex, where she's brash and and mean and you know, sexy but also sort of like reckless about it and whatever. And it just it happened so fast. And yeah. I think the Ice Storm is the one moment where you see her at the exact midpoint of you can still see Little girl Christina Ricci, but you can also see this sort of like adult, sardonic, like well over it girl there, you know, teenager there too. And it's very, it's a very exciting and impressive performance.
1: Just as for Christina Ricci, you well, I think just in general, absolutely, yes, love just her. in general. Love her, love her. Like... I kind
0: of love everybody. I think you're right. I think. As much as Toby Maguire's never gonna be my favorite, I really did enjoy him in this. I liked um his oh, see I
1: don't like him. Like David Crumholtz is his like pothead friend, and I would rather see David Crumholtz in that role. Oh, interesting. Like I don't I think Toby Maguire, like he's made fun of for being like a bug eyed actor, but like this is the essential bug eyed <laughs> Toby Maguire for me.
0: I don't know. I like him. I like him in this. I like him. I like his sibling rapport with Christina Ricci. I think for as much as the storyline where he sort of pines for Katie Holmes as Libets, which you are totally right, absolutely a literary, uh, a name from a character in a book for sure. Um, What is it? Libets Scott? Libets something. Something stupid. Something stupid. Casey. Libets Casey. I don't know. I feel like that's the best case scenario for that kind of uh, storyline where the overprivileged boy sort of tries to climb up the ladder to the even more overprivileged girl and tries to sort of maneuver this other guy out of her way and ends up with her sort of flat out drunk. And he is the least gross about it. I was kept waiting for like him to like put a hand on her boob or something like that. And it never happened. So I guess small favors. But yeah, Elijah Wood's also very good in this movie. Little Man Tate's really good in this movie. It's it's a really well done. And also the supporting cast were like Kate Burton will show up. Allison Janney, Janney. as who we the haven't sort of even talked about. the mistress of the key party. Henry Zerny as the kind of Casanova of the suburban dad set. It's a great
1: cast. It's a great cast. It's Which a really good cast. also like sag ensemble, you were right there. Yep. Yep. Full Monty won that year, right? Yes, it did. Yeah. Which, like, it's still, like, SAG was still relatively new at this point, so it's like that was definitely one of the early stages of realizing what SAG Ensemble could do for a movie, Yeah, winning that prize. Once again, I just imagine, like,
0: the cast of of The Ice Storm or, you know, Seamus or whatever just sort of raising their fist and being like, Monty! Just like, once (laughs) again, you have thwarted us.
1: Oi. Oi. I really like it. Pro, very I like pro it the too. Ice I Storm. This is both, I think, our first movie that we have discussed on this podcast that was in can competition and is a member of the Criterion Collection. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what's really happening again. Soon.
0: We're really hitting the top of the barrel here. So, two couple things I wanted to pull from my notes before we moved on. One of it was I loved the music choices in this movie. There was a. Jim Croce song, early on when it's um, Christina Ricci and Tommy McGuire doing their Charles, they you know they each call each other yeah. Charles is sort of an inside thing. Um, they're you know catching up with him being home from boarding school and they're playing the Jim Croce record. That's great. The um, the Elton John's Levon playing when he's trying really to good use of Levon seduce Libitz is I love that song and I just that really made me happy. So, they use
1: uh, "too late to turn back now," which is really yes. well used in Black Klansmen last yeah. year.
0: Yeah. Oh, good point. Thank you for reminding me of that. Um, that's so funny. So, I, as I mentioned before, The Ice Storm number one on Gene Siskel's top ten of 1997. Siskel's an interesting film uh, film critic to talk about in retrospect he's so tied to Ebert and in that duality, he was always the Ebert was always the real film scholar. And Siskel was a little bit more of a dilettante just to, you know, not to, Mm -hmm. you know, malign the dead or anything like that, but he was a little bit more pedestrian and, and surface level and would, you know, attach, latch onto these thing reasons to love or hate movies that didn't really have a whole lot to do with cinema. Um, but he all he and Ebert also had this like famously, uh, sort of tetchy relationship with each other and combative and passive aggressive and whatever. So I found his in looking for his review of the Ice Storm. I found his 1997 Best of the Year article where he talks about his top ten, his best movies, his worst movies. He gives uh, a tie for actor of the year to Kevin Klein and Matt Damon. One of Kevin Klein for being in both In and Out and the Ice Storm, and then. After that, he, sa- he lists surprise of the year. He says it's another tie. Titanic, with its $200 million budget, was good. That was his first surprise of the year. And that was tied with <laughs> film critic Roger Ebert gave the same three-star rating on the same day to both Steven Spielberg's Amistad and John Hughes's worthless production of Home Alone 3. Which, man, Ew. if you're going to be passive-aggressive in calling your co-star a shit critic that's some really, really finely tuned shade right there. And Jesus.
1: Hats people off, sh- Jeans would, is cool. like, Roger Ebert is once again beloved because I think people are actually revisiting his work and thinking about it in context. Yeah. And, like, at the time, people would shit on Roger Ebert for things like that. But, like, Roger Ebert, one of the reasons that I still love him and his work is that, like, it's fucking Home Alone 3, guys. Like, does it hit the ceiling of what it's going to be and that's a three-star review? Sure. Like, maybe three stars is generous, but he could really be, like, generous for accepting a movie as what it was sometimes and also later saying if he was right or wrong in doing so. Also, Roger Ebert was
0: one of the earliest testaments to the idea of you have to look beyond the star rating. The star rating is not the sum total of the evaluation going on here. You couldn't just sit and say, like, Ebert gave this three stars and this three stars. He must like them exactly equally. Like, it was always about reading the actual review, reading his actual sentiments. One of the things about Ebert that I always found, um, you know, a little bit not frustrating, well, frustrating, but also a little bit just sort of like, you know, oh, Roger, you always sort of do this. He He would not uh, infrequently get plot points wrong in a way that, like, in his Ice Storm review, he mentions Toby Maguire giving um, giving pills to Katie Holmes to make her more uh, pliable to his sexual advances, which is not what happens in the movie, right? He wants to knock no. out Krumholtz, and she takes the pills sort of against his his hopes, right? yes okay that's what i thought and like ebert was making me sort of doubt that a little bit okay
1: Ebert would also famously watch like five movies a day every day oh yeah so some grace i don't know um
0: oh like i'm not shitting on roger ebert i'm just saying that like that was sort of one of you know it's a thing he did not
1: not unoften all right anything else from you before we go into the imdb game uh, if we haven't done enough justice for truly justice for christina ricci like if if black swan had happened 10 years before it did <laughs> then we would have oscar winner christina ricci oh wow i would also that is really a statement. like statement that is a statement but like i want her to have her black swan role Listen. christina ricci is a weird case like not a whole lot of i think Writers and directors understand what her limitations and gift set are, but like when she has an opposite of sex, it's that's like perfectly attuned to her. She's perfect. if Christina
0: Ricci had played Nina Sayers in Black Swan, that would have made that movie a mermaid's reunion, and I would have died on the spot.
1: Damn, would
0: have died on the spot.
1: You know what? Cast share in is the, the Barbara Kasavis Hershey role. role. Yes, no, cast her is Matthew Cassewitz. Oh the awful lascivious director also give me you know what i want i want a sequel to 200 cigarettes i want 201 cigarettes oh my god Again, reunites christina ricci and gabby hoffman
0: one bajillion percent i want that to happen and get courtney love to show up as well courtney love kate hudson christina ricci and gabby hoffman in 201 cigarettes where they have to cross-country road trip to something
1: Martha Plimpton as well.
0: Martha Plimpton as well. All five of them. Boys boys on the motherfucking side. 200 cigarettes in the trunk. There you go. Do it. Damn it, I want that movie to happen now. I
1: know. You've ruined me. You've ruined me, File. (laughs) We are the two people on this world that still remember 200 cigarettes.
0: I saw that movie in the theater. So did I. I was so excited for that movie. All right. IMDb game. Tell, tell the children what it's, what it's about.
1: Okay, so we always end our episodes with the IMDb game. The IMDb game, the objective is to name the four titles that IMDb says that an actor or actress is most known for. Um, the caveats being we try to avoid Marvel Cinematic Universe and Harry Potter. Those always float to the top, and that's pretty damn boring to guess a random Harry Potter movie that Maggie Smith is known for. Um, and we also mention television work and voiceover work. If we get two wrong guesses, we get the years of the remaining titles. And after that, we just give a free-for-all of hints.
0: Love a free-for-all of hints. All right. So do you want to give or guess first?
1: Um, how about I give first? Give it to me. So one of the performances of this year that we talked about in terms of what this nomination means is Joan Cusack your imdb challenge is joan cusack all right love her
0: love her all right oh she's a very interesting case isn't she okay
1: no television no voiceover work
0: so no shameless
1: no toy stories
0: all right i'm gonna start with working girl
1: Working Girl, yes. All right. Oscar nomination, Working Girl. Oscar nomination for Working Love Girl. Love that
0: nomination. Love that last scene in Working Girl. Right as we're kicking it to Carly Simon, where Melanie, uh, Mel, uh, Melanie Griffith just calls Joan Cusack and she says, "Sin, guess where I am," and it just like zooms out to to Cusack like screaming to all the other girls, and
1: in the her river office. is running. The river
0: is running. We're panning out of the office. We see the Twin Towers and it's awkward, but you know what? We power through. Working
1: Girl is wonderful, but I'm also kind of the asshole about Working Girl that I'm like, you know, she's like doing horrible things for this job, right? Like she's like ruining people's lives. Don't be that guy. I am that guy. Sorry.
0: Working Girl is wonderful. Working Girl is wonderful.
1: All right. Joan Cusack, In and Out. In and Out, yes.
0: I mean, ideally, her four are pretty straightforward and that it should be Working Girl in and out broadcast news uh adams family values
1: um are you saying broadcast news and adams family values yes. are you gonna throw out those two yes no you just got two wrong answers. two in a row okay all right John cusack is the interesting case where all of her oscar nominations are in her in her imdb home 4 because not that doesn't happen very often or it'll be like the random nomination right um your two years are 1997 and 2012
0: so another ninety-seven besides In and Out and two thousand twelve.
1: This oh, movie yeah. definitely has like a cult attached to it. I definitely want to revisit. This is a movie that my father loves. Two thousand
0: twelve or nineteen
1: ninety seven? Ninety seven. Cult.
0: It's weird that School of Rock is not one of these. Um. Oh, 1997 is probably Gross Point Blank that she starts with Gross Point
1: Blank. All right. It's not a movie you think of as a cult movie, but it definitely has like a cult. Oh, definitely. It's interesting.
0: All right. 2012 is Friends with Money.
1: No shit. Um, thought I probably don't remember her being in this movie. She plays a therapist. And
0: Friends with Money was earlier than 2012. She plays a therapist. Oh, it's either
1: a therapist or a like it's
0: um. Uh what is it called? Perks of Being a Wallflower.
1: It's perks of Being a Wallflower. Yep, yep. I remember her in that.
0: Okay. That's a good IMDb for Joan Cusack.
1: It should I be being It little. should
0: it should be Adams Family Values instead of Perks of Being a Wallflower. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Yay for me. It didn't take Hurrah. me very long. All right. So, we mentioned a bunch in this podcast that um under the Fox Searchlight banner, uh The Ice Storm got muscled out of there by the roly-poly stripper Brits of the full Monty, one of whom's, whose stars was the about-to-become-a-crossover-in-America actor Tom Wilkinson, Yeah. Who would eventually get nominated for some Oscars. Really good. So why don't you guess the four known for for Tom Wilkinson?
1: He's hard because he does, like, bit roles in James Bond movies and such. Um, ooh, I will throw out the easy ones first. Michael Clayton. Correct. Is The Full Monty one of them? Yes. Okay. Ooh. I don't think this is going to be here, but I'm going to throw out his other Oscar nomination. In the Bedroom. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, so you got the three easy ones. great movie. The
0: fourth one is really hard, but have at it.
1: Okay, I know he's in He's gotta be in One of the freaking James Bond movies I just don't remember who he is in Or something like that Oh no 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 no. it's not James Bond Is Is he in Mission Impossible I think he's in one of the Mission Impossibles Ugh No, I know what it is, because boys run IMDb. He was in Batman Begins. It is Batman Begins.
0: He was in Batman Begins, but it is not Batman Begins.
1: I always think that it's dude stuff. You do. Um,
0: Eternal Sunshine? Nope. It should be. It absolutely should be. It is not Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind.
1: Okay. Well, that's my two wrong answers. What's my year?
0: Your year is...
1: 2014.
0: 2014. Mm. Is it Selma? Nope. He plays. He's John- in Selma. He's in. He plays Lyndon Johnson, but it's not Selma. That is that year.
1: Mm. Is this an Oscar movie? Yes. Hmm. <laughs> Was that no? That wasn't Skyfall.
0: I'm trying to find the James Bond movie that you think you're talking about.
1: (laughs) Maybe I am just fully wrong in thinking that he is in all spy movies. But he's. I think you
0: might be confusing James Bond movies with um, Guy Ritchie movies.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, 2004 Oscar movie. 2014,
0: not 2004. It's Grand Budapest. It's Grand Budapest
1: damn movie it shows up for people who aren't even in that movie i guarantee you
0: yeah yeah he's very barely in that movie that was i want to say the most was that did not win did that win the most oscars that year uh or tied with birdman
1: that's the gravity year i think oh no that is the birdman year um let me look up because it won a
0: ton, it won a lot more than I thought. That was that movie becoming him. like the Wes Anderson movie that was Oscar favorited, was always surprising to me. It's never been my favorite Wes Anderson movie. It's always, I love it. And there are critics who are just like far and away his best film, and I'm like, was it? I just I never connected with it. By the way, he was in Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol, even though it's uncredited. He plays IMF Secretary, but yes.
1: I remember him being in the trailer to some kind of spy movie in a car. He very well might have been in
0: the trailer for Ghost Protocol, because I think he's he like gives... I'm sure he's in the trailer for Ghost Protocol. That's got to be what you're thinking. Mm. But it's strange to me that it's Grand Budapest for him and not, say, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, which he's wonderful in, Duplicity, which he's wonderful in, um, Rock and Rolla is the Guy Ritchie movie I think you were thinking of, maybe. Um, yeah. He's just so good in so many movies. Like, honest to God. Eternal Sunshine, you mentioned. Um, and then that era of just, like, before he... St- like, when he was only ever in costume dramas where it was, like, mm-hmm. Shakespeare in Love, Wild, Girl with a Pearl Earring, um, The Patriot. He was, like, the bad guy in The Patriot.
1: Um... Wilkinson is so good. You want to so talk good. about Oscar like, and Lucinda? dramas that are do not get their full due because we don't take them seriously. In the Bedroom is like if 2001 wasn't such an insane year. Like that is a number one movie in any year for me.
0: Oh, absolutely. When is Todd like, Field going to do his follow up to Fucking In the Bedroom?
1: Ugh. Uh, well, Little Children.
0: Oh, right. When is he going to do his follow up to Fucking Little Children? <laughs> <laughs> My bad. Um, You know what other movie he was in in 1997 besides the Full Monty? 1997, by the way, a great year for Tom Wilkinson. He's in Oscar and Lucinda. He's in Wild. He's in the Full Monty. And he's in one of my favorite movie titles of something that I've never seen, but it screams indie movie of the 90s to me. Can you tell me what I'm thinking
1: of? She's so lovely?
0: No. Smilla's Sense of Snow. (laughs) Which, like... Name a ah, title that sounds ah, more late 90s indie like, than Billy Smilla August's Smilla's Sense of Smilla's Snow. Sense of snow. On yeah, it's exactly what it is. Smilla's Sense of Snow Falling on Cedars. Yep, that's exactly it. Julia Ormond. God, the Julia Ormond era was interesting. We should do a mini series on the films of Julia Ormond because she was a Oscar buzzed actress
1: for a while there. Kept, people kept waiting for characters. it to happen. Do we want to plug that we will be doing one soon?
0: Yeah, we're going to be doing a mini series soon on the films of 2003. So the we're going to try and tell an announcement
1: on Twitter very soon for that.
0: Yeah, we're going to try and tell kind of a complete story of the the sort of the Oscar buzz story of 2003 through four movies that we will tell you about soon and yeah, we're going to see how that works. We're going to see yeah, what the miniseries out, life is like. Yeah,
1: we want to the thing to see how it works for us, and if you guys like it as well. If you have ideas for a series, throw one out there. We I won't do them all
0: the time. I don't think we ever want to move into a, a phase where we're doing nothing but miniseries, but it could be a fun way to kind fun of experience. tell bigger stories through smaller stories.
1: So I joked on Twitter about doing a Naomi Watts one, and then I was like, That oh, ain't no well, joke, sister. Would be that I want idea. to do. So, want... that could be a future idea, but if you guys have any ideas of things you would want us to dig into deeply over mini series. Shout us out on Twitter.
0: Absolutely. Uh, that Twitter account is at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. And that is our episode for this week. Uh, like I said, if you had more, if you want more of this had Oscar buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at this had Oscar buzz dot Tumblr dot com. The aforementioned Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Christopher, where can the listeners find you and your stuff?
1: Uh, You can find me on Twitter at ChrisVFile, that's F-E-I-L. Also the same name on Letterboxd, where our This Had Oscar Buzz list is, where you can find our IMDb game stats and direct links to our episodes. Please also find me at thefilmexperience.net.
0: Hooray! I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I I am also on Letterboxd as the exact same thing with the exact same spelling. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us stand out with iTunes visibility, so just drop that review off like a pair of keys in a bowl and hand it back to Alice and Jenny and wait for the festivities later on. That is all for this week but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz, Charles. Everyone's a winner baby, that's, no lie. that's no lie. You never fail to satisfy that's that's nice.